Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast friends. We got a great show as we wind down 2022. Our guest is Louis Vincent Gov founding partner and CEO of GovCal, a leading independent provider of macro research, and GovCal Capital, a global asset manager. In today's episode, Louis kicks it off with the biggest topic in global markets today, the cheap pivot and reopening of China. He shares his outlook for how it may affect global supply chains, commodity markets, financial markets. He covers the case for emerging markets, why he isn't bullish on the U.S., and why it may be time to rethink your portfolio construction as we head into a new year. This episode is brought to you by 10 East. Longtime listeners know I've invested in private markets quite a bit myself, but with access to these markets broadening, it can be hard to know where to find vetted high quality offerings. That's where 10 East comes in. 10 East is a platform where qualified investors can co-invest on a deal by deal basis across private equity, private credit, real estate, venture, and other one-off opportunities typically unavailable through traditional channels. They're founded and led by Michael LaFell, who spent his early career building Davidson Kempner and who invests material personal capital in every offering they bring to the platform, aligning interests with 10 East members who co-invest at their discretion. Join numerous founders, executives, and portfolio managers from leading investment firms who use 10 East to diversify their personal portfolios. Inquire for membership at 10east.co. That's the number 10, east.co. Please enjoy this episode with GovCall's Louis Vincent Gov. Louis, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Good to meet you. Where do we find you today? I'm on Vancouver Island, about 30 minutes north of Victoria. I got to see your view out the window. I'm on uh, also looking out the window here is a beautiful SoCal day. It's a little Pacific Northwesty. <laughs> you mentioned you're a little bit interior, not Victoria. Water's a little colder. Where are you? Yeah, I'm on a place called uh, Cobble Hill, right on the water as well. So we're looking... I guess at the same ocean, but you're probably right. It's not exactly the same weather. It's dark and gray. I'm actually, I own a property that used to be owned 100 years ago by Al Capone. He used to run his whiskey from here because we're right across from the San Juan Islands. So he would load up some small ships and bring whiskey over to the San Juan Islands that are obviously U.S. owned and put the whiskey onto bigger boats that would then go down to L.A. and San Francisco. I'm basically in the Bahamas of the days. You find any Capone artifacts, any bottles of whiskey in the basement? No, I was hoping. No old guns, no bottles of whiskey, no hidden stashes of money, nothing at all. No, been very disappointing. We should have had Ronaldo come over and uh, open the basement, but no, nothing like that. So you spend a pretty good amount of time in Hong Kong as well, a lot of the team there. How do you kind of divvy up the travel these days? So our firm is based in Hong Kong, and I spend most of my career there. I've lived in Hong Kong more than I've lived anywhere in my life. As you point out, GAFCAL, my company, is based, headquartered in Hong Kong. We have an office in Beijing. We have an office in Singapore. So we're primarily an Asian firm. Before COVID, I was sort of doing half and half. Obviously, during COVID, that was impossible. I did go back a few times and dealt with the quarantine and everything else. But since then, I've basically been mostly here. I'm starting to go back and forth again. I was just back in Hong Kong for three weeks, just got back, and now I'm here. All right. So I've been a long time listener. Anytime I see you come across my podcast feed or get lucky to read one of your research reports, I jump at it and um, have always been a big fan. You certainly have a view that's global. Most U.S. investors, and this is institutions too, they love to have the home country bias, as does everyone, really. But you have a global perspective. So We're going to talk about a lot today, and I'm going to let you choose where we begin, whether it's U.S. or whether it's China. We're recording this mid-beginning of December 2022. What's the world look like as we finish this year? I think the big story is China's reopening, right? You have the second largest economy in the world that's been kept mothballed for three years. Now it's reopening, and I think that begs a ton of questions. It's how much pent-up demand is there going to be? 
How much supply chain dislocations are we going to face? What does the reopening of China tell us for the near-term political health of the country? I mean, there's so many different rabbit holes we can go down, but for me, that's, that's the big change. And it's all the more important change since we know that the U.S. economy is slowing down. If you look at most leading indicators, whether you're ISM surveys, your yield curves, your your OECD leading indicators, they're all pointing to some kind of slowdown. The same story in Europe, probably worse in Europe, actually. We also know that each time Chinese growth has reaccelerated in 2003, in 2008, in 2015, it sort of triggered a rebound in the global industrial cycle. China reopening is going to lead to a rebound. The question is how much, and is it going to be big enough to trigger a global rebound? That for me is a big question. So I think we should, bottom line, we should start with China. All right. So I think a lot of listeners, investors say, okay, well, we've seen this play before. China looks like they're going to start to reopen and they don't. They shut everything down. One of the different things seems to be an indicator of this last grouping has been the protests. Is that something from a Western media perspective is legit and real? And is this causing a real pivot or is this something that, you know, is just going to get smashed down and go back to lockdowns? No, I think it is causing a real pivot. And here, that's perhaps where there's divergence between the Western view of China and the reality on the ground. Most people in the Western world probably don't realize this, but there's protests all the time in China. They're not covered by CNN or CNBC or anybody because the protests are typically about local issues, polluted water or corrupt officials or whatever else. So you have a sort of roadmap as to how the Chinese government deals with protests. And the roadmap is they give in as quickly as possible. What they do is they blame middle management. So they'll fire the local mayor, fire the party official, and then they give in. And they give in because fundamentally the Chinese Communist Party owes its legitimacy from its ability to keep social stability. Now, I know in the Western world, the view is the Chinese Communist Party owes its legitimacy to its ability to deliver the economic goodies, to deliver growth. But that's actually not true. What the Chinese Communist Party prides itself on is maintaining social harmony, peace, etc. Partly because if you look at China's own history from basically 1850 till 1975, it was nothing but anarchy, hyperinflation, famines, foreign invasion, civil war. It was the most miserable place to live for 125 years. So the bottom line is a huge premium to social stability in China, massive premium. And I know that in the Western world, when we think Chinese protests, our minds immediately harp back to 1989, right? Because those were very powerful images. The guy blocking the tanks, the students getting shut down. These are powerful images. So in our minds, we see this. When the protests broke out uh, a couple of weeks ago, everybody thought, oh my God, it's going to be another Tiananmen. They're going to send the troops. They're going to shoot down everybody in the street. It's going to be horrible. Not at all. Instead, what we're seeing is they've turned around and they're rapidly reopening. You had an editorial in the Beijing Times last week highlighting that, look, when we shut down, it was the right thing to do because COVID was very deadly. But COVID isn't very deadly anymore. We've had now 5,000 cases a day in Beijing for the past week. We've had zero deaths. So we can reopen. COVID is no longer deadly. And that is now basically the message being pushed out there. And the only question now is how fast is the reopening going to happen and what are the consequences? Now, the good news is we sort of have a playbook. We've seen reopenings in the US. We've seen reopenings in Europe. We've seen reopenings in Australia and Brazil, wherever else. And you've sort of always seen the same thing, massive pent-up demand. But at the same time, and for me, that's the big question, is when you first reopen, everybody catches COVID. And it doesn't mean you die, because actually the death rate is really low, but everybody calls in sick. Do you remember a couple summers ago when the U.S. reopened, it was the summer of the canceled flights. All the flights were canceled because the pilots were calling in sick, because the stewardesses were calling in sick. Do you remember, you live in L.A., you had like 100 ships waiting outside of L.A. because the dockers were calling in sick, the truckers were calling in sick. You had massive supply chain dislocations everywhere, simply because people wouldn't show up to work for two weeks. China's not going to experience this. You have to imagine that the virus is going to run through the country, partly because that's what the virus does, partly because China's a very, very densely populated country. The landmass of China is roughly the same as the US, but it's four times the population. And it's like everybody lives along the East Coast. So it's super, super densely populated. So bottom line, I think if your business model 
let's say you're Apple and your business model is dependent on having 100,000 workers show up and live in dorms on top of each other, you're going to have a tough three to six months because those guys are going to be sick. Yeah. So your best guess as you look to this and culturally speaking, accounting for the differences is, is this something that you feel like China has really planned for? They're like, all right, we're going to stock up on materials. We know that this is coming at some point. We're going to prepare for this. Or is this something that's just going to be a massive surge in consumer demand that overwhelms everything? Like, What's the kind of implications that you think as far as markets and economies this is really going to have? I wish I knew. (laughs) I wish I knew. I do think China was in the path of reopening. You saw Hong Kong already reopened. They already reduced the amount of quarantine to come into China. So it was on this path already. So I think that there was some level of planning. I do believe the demonstrations have brought everything forward and at an accelerated pace, but they were going in that direction anyway. Now, have they stockpiled commodities? Yes, I believe they have. Because if you look at the data, for me, one of the the more interesting data points that nobody talks about is pre-COVID, China was importing 4 billion a month worth of commodities from Russia every month. Post-COVID, these past few months, China was importing 11 billion, so almost three times as much. You would look at this and you think, how's this happening when there's no construction going on, when the real estate market's been tanking, when obviously everybody's stuck at home? It has to be stockpiling. And in that regards, it's interesting that as China reopens, I, along with a lot of people, expected energy prices to rally hard. It's like, oh, China's consuming a million and a half barrels less than it otherwise would, but it's not happening. So On the commodities front, I think that they have stockpiled. But here's the other question. In the US, when people came out of lockdowns, they found out that mortgage rates were 100 basis points below where they were when they'd gone into lockdown. They found out that for the same monthly car payment, instead of getting a Toyota, you could get a BMW or you could get a second car. And everybody did that. It's like, oh, for the same monthly payment, I can get 50% more house. Oh, I'll upgrade my house. And then everything that goes along with it. I need to buy a new fridge. I need to buy a new oven. Then you find out like supply chain dislocations all over the shop. I highlight this because while everywhere in the world, mortgage rates have just gone up two, three, 400 basis points, in China in the past 12 months, they've gone down 150 basis points. So now people are going to come out of lockdown and they're going to find out that, oh, my car payment is so much cheaper. I can afford two cars instead of one, or I can afford 50% more apartment. So the big question is, are they going to do that? Because Yes, they might have stockpiled commodities, but they didn't stockpile Toyota cars. They didn't stockpile ovens and fridges. Nobody does that. So if at the same time, the Toyota factory in China, the Honda factory in China, doesn't get delivered gearbox because the guys at the gearbox factory all have COVID, then of course you can't deliver a car. If you have a car without a gearbox, you have a paperweight. And so I think the potential for supply chain dislocation on the consumer good side is quite high. In essence, why should we expect China to have a different experience than what we had? That'd be my question. When I say we, I mean France or the US or, or most of the Western world. I think as China reopens, you're going to get the increase in demand on the one side and the supply chain dislocations on the other. So it's going to be potentially the last COVID-linked inflationary shock to the system. And so as we start to think about China and assets in a portfolio, we tweet a lot about emerging markets, but China in particular being the elephant of emerging markets. You know, the average U.S. investor, if you look at, I think, global market cap, emerging markets is, let's call it 13%-ish, depends on if you do float adjusted or whatever. But the average American has about 2%, I think Goldman says, in emerging markets. It's a way underweight in general. But China, and particularly on the equity side, if you look at the valuations, it's either at or near the cheapest it's ever been going back 30 plus years. And the market market going down 60% has a way of causing that to happen, of course. Who are the winners and losers? As we look out, Chinese stocks, they look good to you, they risky. Uh, as we look around the implications of this, what's the impact? I'd add one more thing. Two months ago, I was doing call after call with clients who were asking, is China uninvestable? Which is, of course, what you ask after it's fallen 60% not before it falls 60%. So I think there's been, look, everybody's puked out China and there was a sort of cathartic moment with the People's Congress when they took out Hu Jintao and very and publicly humiliated him and Xi Jinping 
basically monopolized all political power. Everybody just had to write them out. For me, that was the final puke. And since then, it's been good news after good news. But, you know, look, the bottom line is China's reopening. How'd you play that? You buy China. I mean, that's like, let's not beat around the bush. It's undervalued. It's underowned. And you have a positive catalyst for growth, positive catalyst for earnings. And it has started to outperform. The beauty is it's a liquid market. It's decently big. There's some fast-growing names in there. So that's the obvious play. But to your point, China, it's the second biggest economy in the world. And it's the primary source of growth for most emerging markets. You look at the Indonesias, the Thailands, the Saudi Arabias of this world, their growth are increasingly tied to what's happening in China. And so the fact that China is now rebounding is going to be a great boon for all these guys. Now, it's also a very important market for Japan and for Europe. If you're very reluctant to take risk and you think, I can't trust emerging market accounting or this or that, you can play it through Japan or through Europe. I'll just highlight one thing. If we'd had this chat a year ago, and if I told you, look, over the coming year, you're going to see the Fed be much more hawkish than anybody expects. They're going to raise rates 400 basis points or 375, but whatever, while the market's expecting 150. So much more hawkish than anybody expects, number one. Number two, the US dollar as a result is going to rebound very strongly. The DXY is going to go up 22% in six months, which it's basically only done once before. And number three, China's going to stay on lockdown and a much harder lockdown than anybody expects for the next 12 months. If we'd thought that a year ago, we would have said, oh my God, just avoid emerging markets. It's going to be a bloodbath, right? Tight of Fed, strong US dollar, weak China. That was like a recipe for a massive faceplant. Now, interestingly, in the past year, you look at whether on the bond side or the equity side, markets like Indonesia, Brazil, South Africa, Mexico, India, they've all outperformed the US bond and equity markets in spades. This is highly unusual because emerging markets in general, they tend to be the redhead stepchildren of financial markets. When things go bad, they're the first ones to get slapped. In Asia, where I've spent most of my career, you take a market like Indonesia. Indonesia is your, your, the typical market you avoid each time there's a sell-off. It always gets sold hard. And yet this year, Indonesian bonds, uh, you barely lose any money on them, and you actually make money on Indonesian equities. I highlight this because for me, bear markets, as unpleasant as they are, are there for a reason. They're there to transfer the leadership of one group of stock to the next. We're in the midst of a bear market. It's not fun. Nobody enjoys it. But while you're in a bear market, what you need to do is try to look for where are you seeing outperformance. And today, one of the places you are seeing clear outperformance in spite of massive macro headwinds is emerging markets. Now, let's fast forward to the coming year. What are going to be the trends next year? Number one, by far the biggest trend, China reopens. Massive, very important trend. Number two, I think there's a good chance the Fed is basically done rising pretty soon. They might have one more rate hike in them, maybe two but that's roughly it. Number three, the US dollar has already started to roll over. Identifying that the Fed is getting close to done, the US dollar is rolling over. So those huge three headwinds to emerging markets are now turning into tailwinds because when the US dollar is weak, that's good for emerging markets. When the Fed doesn't tighten, that's good for emerging markets. And when China is booming, that's good for emerging markets. Emerging markets outperformed when they should have underperformed. So what are they going to do now? I think they're going to, it's the place to be. Emerging markets, the markets right now, if you just listen to them, it's telling you this is the new bull market. This is where you need to deploy capital. And to your point, everybody's looking at it and be like, no, I'm not doing this. And Americans have, like you point out, 2% of their assets in emerging markets. So they're going to miss that whole first massive leg in the bull market. One last thing on emerging markets that I think is probably one of the reasons, particularly the big institutions had a big pause and individuals too, was the entire Russian securities market becoming essentially paused or uninvestable. And Russia is largely a rounding error compared to China as far as size with these investing markets. Even though like 95% of emerging market funds own Russian stocks, they look and say, wait a minute, this is a possible playbook for China, Taiwan. It's hard to ever come up with odds, but is that something that should be a serious concern from the investor standpoint? Is it likely, unlikely, consensus, non-consensus? What do you got? It should, but perhaps not for the reason you think. So first, I don't believe for a second China's going to invade Taiwan. They can't pull it off. Mounting an amphibious operation over 100 miles of sea, Hitler, when he controlled the whole of Europe, didn't even try to invade Britain, and that was just six miles of sea. Mounting amphibious operations is the hardest thing in military, and 
Taiwan is a chain of mountains that fall into the sea. And when you look at the struggles that Russia is having to invade Ukraine, and that's just sending tanks over fields of wheat, then forget that. Like, Taiwan isn't going to happen. But the question is nonetheless important because it highlights the underlying theme of the day, which is deglobalization. When most people think of deglobalization, they think of the Apple supply chain or the Nike supply chain and whether that moves back towards the U.S. The much more important deglobalization is the deglobalization of financial flows. The fact that Russians obviously can't invest in anywhere but Russia now. And if you are a European investor, if you are a U.S. investor, all of a sudden you think, oh, maybe China is a dangerous place for me to deploy capital. But that knife cuts both ways. If you're Chinese and you look at this Russian invasion, if you've been a rich guy in China for the past 20 years, each time you made money, you bought a house in Vancouver or a house in Sydney or a house in London. You redeployed capital in the Western world because the greatest comparative advantage of the Western world is the rule of law. It's property rights. It's the fact that if I have a problem, whether I'm black, brown, yellow, whether I'm Jewish, Muslim, Christian, Hindu, I go in front of a court of law in Vancouver, in London, in New York, and I'm treated equally next to the next guy, right? It's all flat. Except we've just added a little asterisk to this. We've said, except if you're Russian. If you're Russian, we can take all your stuff. We can take your football club. We can take your house in Saint-Tropez. We can take your yacht. We can take your private jet. We can take your house in South Kensington. And we can do this without any court orders, without any discussion in parliament. We basically have the G7 world leaders get together over a weekend and they decide to do this. Now, if you're Chinese, you see this, you think, okay, except if you're Russian today, it could be except if you're Chinese tomorrow. This house in Vancouver that I bought on the premise that it was a safe house, in case things went wrong in China, I could always move to Vancouver. Well, actually, this house isn't what I think it was. It is. Because if things do go bad, then it can get confiscated. And so following this Russian invasion, I think we've undermined the biggest, when I say we, I mean the Western world, our biggest comparative advantage, the rule of law and the sanctity of property rights. We've torn that up. I don't think we realize it. When you live in the Western world, you don't realize we've just done that. But from an emerging market where you're very attuned to these things because you're always worried that the government is going to come and take your stuff. If you're rich in China, if you're rich in Saudi Arabia, you're worried the government is going to come and take your stuff. Look at what happened to the Saudi princes when MBS got to power, right? They all got to be holed up in the Ritz-Carlton and basically for a shakedown. So when you come from an emerging market, you're always worried about this. And the Western world was always the place where you deployed capital. If you were Chinese and you bought houses in Australia, the UK, you didn't do it because you thought this would have good returns. You did it for the safety of the capital. Forget the returns. You didn't care about the return on capital. You cared about the safety of capital. So we undermined that. And since we've undermined that, what's happened? Our bond markets have collapsed. Bond yields have gone through the roof. Property is going down. And here you get to the crux of the matter, which is why I thought this deglobalization matters a lot more than people think, but perhaps for the wrong reasons. They've got it backwards. You take a country like the US, you take a country like my own, France, you take the UK. These are countries that have run for 20 years massive twin deficits, big trade deficits on the one hand, big budget deficits on the other. You need somebody to fund that. And the way we funded that was by selling assets to foreigners. The biggest assets we sold were one, government bonds, and two, real estate. And we sold it to the countries that had constant current account surpluses, the Saudi Arabias of this world the Bahrains, the Qatars, the Chinas, the Bruneis. If you look around the world, most Western democracies have big twin deficits. Most emerging markets have big twin surpluses. So we've lived in this odd world where poor countries were funding rich countries. And they were doing so because of the security of capital. Now, if you're China, you think, hmm, if you're Chinese, I don't want to buy any more Vancouver real estate. I don't want to buy any more London or LA real estate. Now, what you're going to do is you're going to buy your real estate in Singapore, you're going to buy it in Dubai, which are really minuscule markets. So it's going to be a lot of money going into a very, very small place. And for me, this deglobalization of finance is perhaps one of the explanations why emerging markets have outperformed this year when really they shouldn't have, is the savings are no longer going to flow from emerging markets to developed markets. They're going to stay in emerging markets, begging the question of, okay, how is the US going to fund twin deficits? worth 7 8 9% of GDP. How is the UK going to do that? The answer is that they won't, and so the currencies will have to fall. 
So other than shorting Vancouver real estate, what uh, <laughs> I heard you guys mention, India has been having a nice run of it lately in their equity market. They're one of the most expensive markets that we track. Most of the countries around the world we think are pretty reasonable to cheap to screaming cheap. The US is not in that bucket. We think they're still pretty expensive market cap weighted. But what's the story with India? Are they going to be a beneficiary or are they going to get hurt by the China reopening? I think the, in the short term, they get hurt. So first, look, India is always expensive. It's been expensive pretty much my entire career. It's expensive because it's an exciting story. It's an exciting story of a rising middle class, of pretty good track record of local entrepreneurs and using capital relative to a lot of emerging markets. It's got a lot going for it. Now, the one great new advantage for India is in every cycle, India, whenever oil prices rose too much, they would get crushed because they have to import so much of their energy. And so they'd have a deterioration in their current account balances, which would force the central banks to tighten, and you'd enter a bear market. Something new is happening in India in that they're getting to pay for more and more of their energy in their own currency. They're buying their oil from not only Russia, but also Iran in Indian rupees. So that basically relieves a sort of Damocles sword from over their head, or at least a sort of current account constraint that was always there. Having said that, I think one of the reasons India has done quite well is that if you're an EM manager or if you're a pan-Asian manager, it's been the only good story this year. That, and to some extent, Brazil, but you have some political uncertainty in Brazil. So if you're an EM manager and you, you have to go pitch your clients and your clients say, well, why are you invested? You want to say India because then you don't get nasty questions. If you say, oh, I'm overweight China, you get all sorts of nasty questions. Oh, but aren't you worried about Taiwan being invaded, money being frozen, et cetera, et cetera. So the way perhaps, you know, that swing games that kids have where one goes up, the other goes down, and it swings like this. To me, this is how China and India are. When foreign investors decide, uh, can't be in China for whatever reason, the money all goes to India, all the EM money. But then when China rebounds, the money has to come from somewhere, and initially it comes from India. So as you look at China reopening, I think the first adjustment will be every emerging market fund, every pan-Asian fund, will have to sell India and buy China. So in the near term, China's reopening is not great news for India. But I think once you pass that phase of portfolio readjustments, which will probably take six to nine months, then India's fine. It's just like, it's not going to be a great six to nine months. That's it. Let's talk a little bit about the US, which I've heard you describe as, for the better part of a while, the cleanest, dirtiest shirt which is like my theme for the pandemic, I feel like, of my wardrobe. <laughs> what does that mean when we're talking about the U.S. economy? I mean, the U.S. dollar is just romping and stomping. The U.S. stock market has been the only place to be for a better part of a decade. Is that coming to an end? What do you see? I think it's already come to an end. And I think it was uh, Bruce Kovner of Caxton who said where he's made the most money in his career is when everybody he talks to was telling him one thing, but the market was already telling him something else. And today, to your point, the general perception out there, partly because of the U.S. dollar strength, is that the U.S. is the cleanest, dirty shirt. It's the only thing you can be seen in. Everything else, Europe's got potential energy crisis. China is uninvestable. By default, you're left with the U.S. So the general perception is the U.S. is the place to be. But meanwhile, when you look at the performance of markets, again, you know, you've made money in Brazil this year. You've made money in India. You've made money in Mexico, you've made money in Indonesia. There are so many big markets that did fine. So the market is, everybody tells you, oh, US is clean as dirty shirts. And meanwhile, it's like, well, hold on. Stock market that's down 20% and a bond market that's down 20% does not qualify as a clean, dirty shirt. That's just a plain dirty shirt. It's just dirty and you shouldn't be seen in it. So the bottom line for me is if you project yourself to the coming year, what's going to be the big story. One is China reopening. So we've covered that. I think the second story for 2023 will be a lot of US bankruptcies. During the years of easy money, you had a lot of stupid projects that got funded and companies that are still to this day burning through cash. Now, the reality is if by now you're not in a positive cash flow as a business, if you're not in positive cash flow, when you've just had quite a few quarters of basically double digit nominal GDP growth, plus 0% interest rates. If you can't make money in that environment, that means you're never going to make money. And in the coming year, investors are going to let you go. So you're going to see a lot of bankruptcies 
in the US, you're going to get into a bankruptcy cycle, which will mean wider corporate spreads. And here for me, that's, if you want to be scared about something, for me, the story is pretty simple. In 2007, 2008, you had roughly 600 billion of triple B debt in the US. Today, you have about 4 trillion of triple B debt in the US. When you get to a recession, anywhere from a fifth to a quarter of that triple B debt typically gets derated to non-investment grade. Now, the non-investment grade market in the US is around a trillion dollars. If you think that in the coming year through bankruptcies, you're going to get another trillion added to that, it's like, who's going to buy this? Because debt markets are extremely binary. If you're managing an investment grade fund, if something gets downgraded to non-investment grade, you can no longer hold it. Now, historically, what you would do is you would call your friendly broker at Goldman Sachs or your friendly broker at Morgan Stanley and you say, hey, I need to get rid of this on my book. Can you guys take this from me? And, you know, Goldman would bid you, I don't know, 55 cents on the dollar. And you'd shout at your broker, but you'd have no choice. And that's what investment banks did. That was their value add was to provide liquidity to the market in times of stress. They can't do that anymore. Since 2008, that ability of them to bring liquidity into a stressed market has been regulated away from them. So you're going to enter into a period of corporate bond downgrades at a time when the corporate bond market has never been bigger with no liquidity provider anymore. And this is very specific to the US because you haven't had that growth of corporate debt elsewhere in the world. So I think the view that the US is the cleanest dirty shirt is going to be severely, severely challenged in the coming year because, look, you've had, again, a massive increase in corporate debt in the US. And that's very specific, again, to the US. And a lot of that debt needs to get repriced at much higher rates. Yeah. As we look at sort of US economy, I mean, obviously, the interest rates ripping up and looking at, you have some of my favorite charts. If we can talk you into sharing some of these, we'll put them in the show notes because you do a great job on laying this out with charts. I'm a visual person, but looking at a lot of your topics, as we look out to 2023, it feels like everyone's obsessed with the Fed. Does, does Powell pivot? Is the bear market over? It seems to be that you're, and I'm putting words in your mouth, but you would say that there's going to be more pain as far as it comes to that view of the world. Is that accurate? It is. And perhaps one of the slides you can share, I can bring it up if you want, but I, I have this table where I look at the top 10 market caps at the end of every decade. In the late 70s, six of the top 10 market caps in the world were energy stocks. Late 80s, eight out of 10 were Japanese stocks. Late 90s, eight out of 10 were telecom and internet stocks. 2000, uh, it was all about how China was going to take over the world. And obviously the past decade, it's all been about how software eats the world and you need to be in US tech, et cetera. 10 out of the top 10 companies are tech stocks today. This has been the theme. Now, the interesting thing, when I show this table to clients, they say, oh yeah, yeah, the 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, those were bubbles. But today, today that's not a bubble. These guys generate great cash flows. They have quasi-monopoly situations, which gives them the ability to bully governments. It's very different this time. There's this belief, to your point, everybody's talking about the Fed pivot. Everybody you talk to says, oh, well, I need to wait for the Fed to cut interest rates again, and then I can go back to buying Amazon and go back to buying Tesla and go back to buying Facebook as soon as that happens. Forget it. Forget it. That bubble has now imploded. The market's already moving on to something else. To me, sitting around waiting all day for the Fed to cut interest rates so I can buy Facebook again makes about as much sense as being in Tokyo in 1992 and thinking, ooh, when is the BOJ going to cut so I can buy Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi again? You had some great rallies in Japan through the 90s, and you know you could trade those rallies. But you want to play the fundamental trends. And not a lot of people made money, in, even though you had big rallies, not a lot of money made, people made money in Japan in the 90s because structurally you were in a bear market. Again, bear markets are there for a reason. We're in a bear market. Bear markets are there to change the leadership. The bear markets... 2011, 2000, it allowed to change the leadership from everything's about China to everything's about US tech. For me, the bear market we're in now is telling us time to change the leadership. And by the way, when the Fed cuts, sure, you'll get a rally in Facebook and in Google and everything else, but it will mark the starting gun for the massive outperformance of emerging markets. From the moment the Fed cuts, the US dollar will really face plant. This is when it will become obvious to people that actually most of the growth in the world over the next decade is going to occur in emerging markets, and this is where you need to be. So the Fed pivot does matter. And I think as you get financial accidents in the US in 2023, 
you will see that Fed pivot. But to me, it won't be a sign of, oh, let's go back to the previous winners. I mean, the illustration of Japan alone, we talk a lot about it on the show, not just because I like to ski in Japan and hopefully get to revisit this year after many years of not going. And we're getting a nice discount on the yen, but... Very nice discount. Right. The example you give is so true. I mean, look at the 80s. I mean, it was 30 years on a total return basis before that market got its head back above water. I mean, trying to tell investors as much as I love stocks for the long run, it can be a lot longer than you think. Well, so interestingly, in Japan, in the 80s, a lot of the bubble was around real estate and, of course, banks. If you actually strip out the banks from the index, when you got to 1989, 10 of the top 10 banks in the world were Japanese. The Japanese banks alone were 25% of the world MSCI, just the Japanese banks. Japan was 45% of the world MSCI. I highlight this because, yes, once the bubble imploded, everything collapsed, et cetera. But if you strip out the banks from the index, actually, the index didn't take 30 years to make a new high. It came back pretty quickly because that was really the sort of central point of the bubble, right? So I highlight this because in the US, I think where the bubble was, was in tech, funding any business model that was pretended to be tech, the WeWorks, the Beyond Meats, the uh, Pelotons, all this stuff, you strip that part out. And I think the US will come back very fast. It's just that tech is 30% of the benchmark now, but you strip that part out, the rest, because the rest of the US will do okay. The one hurdle for the industrials, et cetera, now is the strong dollar. As the strong dollar rolls over, there's no reason you're, the John Deere's and the caterpillars of this world can't go on going on. Well, you're speaking right to the heart of a value investor, but we talk a lot about this. We say, look, a lot of the times value investing is fine and everyone focuses on the value part. You're buying cheap stocks or you're buying, and I said, but equally as important to that entire strategy is you're avoiding the really crazy expensive stuff. And the problem with market cap weighting historically has been there's no tether to value. So when you do have these giant booms, the really expensive stuff goes nuts. So Japan in the 80s, my favorite bubble, US late 90s. So just avoiding that, sitting that out, means you hopefully get to survive another day. And we talk a lot about how we think, even within the US right now, value or just anything other than the junk at the top can be probably a totally fine place to be. But that's one of the big weaknesses of market cap weighting and historically why we say it's fine, but not optimal for us. And by the way, on this, I think the equal cap weighted has been beating the crap out of the market cap weighted, right? And that's in spite of the Apple's outperformance. If you did it ex-Apple, it would really beat the pants out of it. Yeah. You had a great quote where you were talking basically that the era coming up is going to be the return to the mean investor, where you're starting to have this uh, reversion. As we look out, you had a great slide where you're talking about various rugby players and how they complement each other. <laughs> Americans, we can talk about basketball team, point guard center, or whatever it may be. As we think about you know portfolio characteristics, we're going to probably print one of the worst traditional portfolio years ever for most stock and bond investors in the US. We did a poll. We said, are you down on the year? And it's like 90% said, yeah. And it's like 90% of the ETFs are down. And we look out in the future. So we got the China part and emerging markets. Anything else that we didn't talk about that you think are interesting areas to plug into the portfolio or to avoid as well? Yeah, absolutely. So to your point, I think there's fundamentally three ways to make money in markets. You either run a return to the mean strategy, you run a momentum strategy, or you run a carry trade strategy. When you put on a trade, it's very important that you know what that guy is doing for it. To your point, it's like putting a team together, right? You mentioned basketball. You don't expect your point guard to be the highest rebounder on your team. You don't expect your center to shoot a bunch of threes. I mean, if they do, it's great, but that's not their job. That's not why you put them on the court in the first place. And so as you build your portfolio, I think it's very important to know, okay, if I buy this, what am I buying it for? Is this a return to the mean trade, a momentum trade, a carry trade? So that you can judge if he's doing their job or not. Again, you're not going to judge the point guard on his ability to rebound. I highlight this because for most people, you bought government bonds for their anti-fragile characteristics. You bought them thinking, well, if my equity is down 20%, then my bonds will be up 10. So uh, that's their job. And that job has failed massively this year. The big failure in most people's portfolio, whether you're a pension fund, an endowment, a private investor, et cetera isn't as much that equities went down 20%. That's part of the model, I would say. 
you buy equities, you accept that you might be down 20%. The part that has failed is that bonds haven't done their job. Now, the fascinating thing to me is that we should acknowledge this. It'd be like a point guard who can't shoot free throws, who went 0 for 10 at the free throw line. If you were the coach, you'd sub him out. You'd say, okay, you know what? You're out. You've lost it. You don't have it. But if you show up today at whatever wealth management firm you want to show up to, at, they're going to give you a nice questionnaire and they're going to say, oh, you're a conservative investor, so we'll put 60% in bond, 40% in equity. Oh, you're an aggressive investor, we'll do 60% in equity, 40% in bonds. And then you tell them, well, hold on, this hasn't worked for two years now. But people still manage money the same way because it's like, well, it worked for 25 years, so hopefully it goes back to working. What if it never works again? What if bonds and equities are now positively correlated because we're now in a structurally inflationary environment? Then you need to completely reconsider your portfolio construction. And I don't think people are doing that yet. I mean, again, you still go to the wealth advisory firms, you still get the same questionnaire you were getting two years ago, and you still get broadly the same asset allocation. And they're just sitting there crossing their fingers that the past two years were an anomaly. What if it is the new normal? What if this is now the world we live in? Then you need to find different assets that are anti-fragile, different assets that protect your equity downside. Now, in an inflationary environment, you need to basically get assets that benefit from inflation, not get assets that get hurt by inflation. Assets that benefit from inflation are, of course, commodities, it's energy, it's emerging markets. It's all the things that actually did diversify your portfolio a year ago. In my portfolio, I'm loaded up with energy. I have so much energy. And it's not been doing well these past few weeks, but I almost don't care because I have other stuff that's doing well right now. Most notably, all my China stuff, it's ripping higher. So my China stuff's ripping higher. My energy stuff's doing badly. It's okay. If tomorrow energy prices go through the roof, my China stuff will sell off, but my energy stuff will do well. Again, what would you own bonds for, OECD government bonds for? Who's going to buy these from you at a higher price? For what reason? And why should portfolios still have 40, 50% built around those? To me, those are the questions investors should be asking themselves. Yeah, I mean, always like thinking back investors to why you own an asset is such a basic, but also critical insight to work through and thinking about what role they play, not just assuming that, I mean, bonds are such a great example. If you study history for past 100 plus years, you know, bonds don't always hedge when stocks do poorly. Sometimes they do, but sometimes they show up at the Christmas party, they drink too much, and that's that. Sorry, that's who you get, your crazy cousin showing up this year. As we start to wind down, what's a view you hold that say 75% plus, so the vast majority of the professional investing world does not hold? It could be right now or it could just be all the time. Anything come to mind? The view I would hold right now that most people don't hold is how... Uh, excuse my French, but how screwed as an asset class OECD government bonds are and how they've benefited from constant inflows from emerging markets and how that is now structurally finished. A view I hold very dearly is we've completely undermined in the Western world our single biggest comparative advantage, you know, what we talked about, and that this is going to be reflected in lower and lower asset prices, especially for the asset prices that are perceived to be safe, i.e. bonds and real estate. I think these two asset classes are almost condemned asset classes in the Western world. And we did this to ourselves. Like, this is what's so infuriating is we did this to ourselves. So my firm belief, I guess, to sum it up is the assets you think are safe are far less safe than you think they are. And the assets that you think are unsafe are probably much safer than you think they are. People's perception of safety is completely wrong. And partly because people equate safety with volatility and if you look at periods that have countries that have gone through inflation, if you had your money in real estate or in bonds in Argentina or in Brazil when they had big inflation or in Zimbabwe or South Africa or wherever else, you got cleaned out. If you held equities, you actually did okay. It was volatile, but over the course of the cycle, you still did okay. So I think the view I hold dearly is actually equities today, given the macro environment, equities are much safer than bonds. There's a couple of comments. One was, I listened to a good podcast this week called Messy Economics, but it was talking about the perspective. It was an Argentine reporter, and I think it was on NPR. Well, it's the show note links, listeners, where an Argentine reporter talked about her childhood in Argentina and then also kind of overlaid 
the experience of the soccer player, Messi, and kind of a lot of lessons about inflation and just moving out of Argentina and the flight from massive inflation. It's a really eye-opening, I think, for a lot of investors, particularly in the U.S., who haven't even thought about inflation even at all in 30 plus years. And the vast majority of investing managers who are managing money today have never really experienced an inflationary environment. If you do, you're probably 70 and no one's uh, listening to you anymore anyway. So uh, you're out playing golf. But we did a post during the pandemic called the Stay Rich Portfolio. And I love to do polls on Twitter to ask people questions and just to kind of probe sentiment. One of them is like, what do you do with your safe money? And everyone, the assumption is T-bills or bonds, right? And we said, you hit on it, the example is so accurate, which is people look at that on a nominal and a volatility basis. But after inflation, we say, how much do you think T-bills or bonds have declined in the past on a real drawdown basis? And most people say like zero to 10%. A few crazies say 10 to 20, you know, and the answer is over 50, right? And so you can look at, you go through a thought experiment, And what we did is we looked at a global portfolio of global stocks, global real assets and bonds, and then you mix that in with some cash. And you can't say prove in our world, but you demonstrate, historically speaking, that's actually a safer, safe money portfolio than just sitting in T-bills and bonds, which is what everyone does and every corporation in the world does. So anyway, that's definitely in my non-consensus views as well. And I don't know really (laughs) many people that believe that besides me, but fun thought experiment to go through. Also, why there's so many yachts in Argentina, if you go down there <laughs> and, and various places in Latin America. If you look back on your career, what has been your most memorable investment? It could be good or bad. And you can also say your most memorable call or position that you've had over the years. There's going to be thousands of them, I'm sure, but anything come to mind? I don't think thousands. I think a career is made of three or four calls, to be honest. And if you get three or four rights, you've had a pretty good career. For me, in terms of learning curve, both also, frankly, money-making opportunity, back in, uh, after the 2008 mortgage crisis, as a firm, we looked at the financial situation of most European countries, and we thought the euro is not going to be sustainable. All these European countries have had to issue massive amounts of debt to backstop their banks, and the market can't carry that much debt, so they're going to hit the wall. So we... I teamed up with a very good friend of mine called Mark Hart, and we set up a fund called the European Divergence Fund. And we did two things. We bought a bunch of CDS credit default swaps on Greece, Portugal, et cetera, on the premise that credit spreads would widen. And we bought a bunch of puts on the euro on the premise that the euro would tank. What was baffling was we made a bunch of money on the credit default swaps, and we lost a bunch of money on the euro puts because few people remember this, but Basically, between 2009 and 2011, the euro went from 120 to 150. And it was very visible that Europe was hitting the wall. You know, Greece was going bankrupt. Italy was in dire straits. And as all this was happening, the euro kept rising. And I was like, what the hell is going on? Why am I getting my face ripped off over here being short the euro? The fund ended up making fine because we made lots of money on the credit default swaps. But we also lost a bunch on the euro. And the end, I was talking about it with my dad, who ran a macro firm in the 80s and 90s. And he told me you should have tried being short Japan in the 90s because by 1990, it was obvious that Japan had hit the wall. So he went short the Nikkei and he went short the yen. And the short Nikkei worked fine. And the yen went from 150 to 85 in 1994. So that means it's going up. So the yen rose massively. So at the end, you go through these episodes and you think, okay, actually, when countries hit financial stress, you would think the currency would go down, but you can have a period where the currency actually shoots up as pension funds repatriate capital, as banks repatriate capital, as insurance companies repatriate capital, as everybody brings money back from abroad to plug the holes, and there's nobody on the other side, then the currency can just go up in a vacuum. That's what we saw in Europe in 2010, 2011. That's what we saw in Japan in 91, 92, 93. I highlight this because everybody looks at the US dollar as a sign of strength today, but Could it be a consequence of the bear market the U.S. has just had? You lose 20% on equities, you lose 20% on bonds. If you're a U.S. pension fund, if you're a U.S. insurance company, are you bringing money back to sort of plug the domestic holes? And as you do, you get these parabolic moves in the currency. I look at the U.S. dollar and I wonder, is this a sign of strength or a sign of weakness with things on the other side? So for me, that was one, that European divergence trade was a big thing in my career. 
The second big thing in my career was China decided to basically open a bond market in 2011. I saw this as a huge opportunity for our firm. I thought, how often am I going to be in the same starting blocks as Schroeder's, as PIMCO, as Fidelity? They have as much of a track record on Chinese think income as I do, which is none because the market didn't exist. So we built a pretty good Chinese think income franchise. And we did so partly on the premise that if China was going to do this, it wanted to do it well. And our bet was that Chinese bonds would outperform most bond markets over any period. And if you look at the past 10 years, five years, three years, Chinese government bonds have outperformed US treasuries, JGBs, because you had massive government support to that market. And so one of the things I learned is, especially when it comes to bonds, especially when it comes to currencies, you don't want to underestimate the strength of government. Through the past 10 years, everybody was telling you the RMB is going to collapse, can't invest in China, can't invest in Chinese bonds. And it was the best performing market. Well said. Louis, where do people find you? They want to read some of your work, hear some more of your soothing voice. What's the best place to go? <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, the best place to go is our website. We have a website. It's gafcal.com, G-A-V-E-K-A-L.com. And from there, we do different things. We have a private wealth arm. We have a institutional money management arm. We have a research arm. So wherever people want to go, they can direct themselves from there. But that's probably the best place. We do have a GAFCAL Twitter feed, but you can sort of keep up to date with some stuff there. I don't really post on Twitter or anything. I don't have much of a social media presence. So the best thing is the website. Where you can follow his Twitter account for some good charts and uh, get your hands on them because they're great. Louis, thanks so much for joining us today. Absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.